This is a conversation with Sabrina Azad. She's a writer who published a moving piece for Mongol media entitled From Halabja to Ghuta, in which she looked at how deniers of Assad's war crimes in Syria were evoking painful memories for survivors of Saddam Hussein's genocidal campaigns against Kurds. She spoke about the legacy of the Halabja massacre, part of the Anfal genocide of the late 80s, as well as the 1991 uprisings against Saddam, and why they offer better insight into the world's reaction to Syria since 2011 than the more frequently mentioned 2003 invasion of Iraq does. As usual, you can follow this podcast on Twitter at FireThesetimes or on Instagram at TheFireThesetimes. You can also support it on Patreon or on BuyMeCoffee.com, the links to which are in the description. Thank you for your time. toxicology and the histories of mountain regions in the east. I also do data analysis and visualizations on a wide assortment of things, refugee rights, war crimes, and especially anti-authoritarian movements with a focus on Kurdish issues. So yeah, thank you so much for having me today. So the topic of our conversation is a rather, well, it's a rather heavy one, let's be honest. Uh, you're com- speaking like if I was if I w- could summarize and obviously I'll ask you to do so uh, in a better way. It's about two of the most notorious war crimes in modern Middle Eastern history, which is obviously saying quite a lot. And I want you, if, if that's okay, to just give us a bit about the background uh, for this piece and tell us a bit about like why did you feel the need uh, to write it in the first place. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, there are two of the biggest war crimes in the region. And there's actually a lot of articles out there on them that I saw, but they're mostly from a very geopolitical lens. You know, whether they deny the chemical attacks and take, you know, Russia's stance or even the ones that affirm them, you know, we'll talk about the need to assert American supremacy over Russia. And, you know, that's that's really not what the uprising's about. It's not even what the victims want. So I saw people who are sort of I don't know, thinking they're being clever by bringing up Halabja to explain, you know, why nothing should be done about what the Assad regime is doing today. So I thought, you know, who better to consult than the actual victims of Saddam's chemical attacks? Because, you know, it's their tragedies which are being used as a political toy, you know, so many years later. And, you know, all we hear is what white people in the West think about Syria or what should be done there. And, you know, my view as someone from the global south has usually been that, you know, wrongful inaction or like enabling a dictator in the past it doesn't mean that there should be an action or enabling you know for the rest of all eternity that doesn't make any sense and especially when it comes to something as um, monumental as chemical attacks and i'll get into this a little bit later about why they're so important but basically as i listened to um older survivors from kurdish and also iranian communities i realized the most like very strongly supported the strikes on the regime after its chemical attacks, or at least um, some form of enforcing a red line, you know, the red line that Obama had mentioned, but never actually enforced. And, you know, I couldn't find any article that really focused on what these people were saying was the best course of action, you know, the people who've actually been through this exact situation before. And there was really nothing out there about the solidarity between the victims between different countries. And I think it was really important to highlight this because we don't get a lot of that. You know, there's so much sectarian and racist propaganda that comes from our region that we really need to highlight every opportunity that we get when we do see like very genuine grassroots solidarity. You know, there was people in um, 
Rojlat, uh, the part of Kurdistan under Iranian mil military rule. And, you know, they went out to the streets. They carried posters, you know, in solidarity, in solidarity with Syrian victims. And I, it wasn't like, you know, thousands and thousands, but it was like, you know, it was still a sizable amount. And, you know, there was no media attention on this at all. I mean, I only knew this because I know people from there. And so I really wanted to honor the anniversary of the Halabja massacre by amplifying these arguments, which are, you know, so overlooked. But I think also the personal narratives, they're really crucial to remind people that at the end of the day, these are, you know, human beings stories, not, you know, pawns in a geopolitical chess game of sorts, which I think is how a lot of people view this whole thing, which is why they'll be like, oh, but what about Halabja? You know, nobody did anything there. So why should they do anything about what the Assad regime is doing now. Like, to the best of your ability, can you tell us a bit about uh, the Halabja chemical attack? Yeah, for sure. So the the Halabja chemical attack was um, sort of the culmination of the unfold genocide which had been happening. Um, so some people put the date starting at 1986. Some people put it, you know, just as um, 1988 at the height of the campaign. But basically it was during... Um, so the genocide itself was, like... Uh, how do I say, an event within an event of the, which was the Iran-Iraq war, which um, I don't think people realize like quite how much that war impacted politics in the region for uh, still today, actually, you know, it, it, it consolidated the revolution in Iran. It allowed Khomeini to like maintain power because, you know, when you're being invaded by another country, you sort of, you know, rally around whichever leader is like the most potent at the time. And so it really, um, a lot of different factions that were in the Iranian revolution, you know, they were basically slammed out once Saddam invaded. So it really had an impact on Iran, obviously. And so Halabja in particular was, um, so when uh, Saddam invaded Iran, uh, Iraqi Kurdish forces actually aligned with Iran because they saw it as an opportunity to get rid of this regime. And so to punish them for this, obviously, so Saddam took it out on Kurdish civilians as dictators do. And so um, what, it started out as sort of rounding up young Kurdish men and ex executing them. Actually, the rate of this was so high that I think this and the genocide in Bosnia um, actually sort of gave rise to the term um, uh, gender side, which is like when you specifically target um, not only like a specific ethnicity or religion, but also um, spe specifically young men. So it was like really monumental in terms of that. And so Halabja specifically was... Um, sort of the culmination of all of this. Um, it, that town was at the time under Iranian military occupation. So there's footage of um, an Iranian soldier uh, right after the Halabja attack happened. And he was basically saying, you know, uh, we understand like why Saddam attacked, you know, Iranian soldiers with chemical weapons, you know, were his enemy. So, okay, that's all right. But, you know, how can you attack your own people? And then this sort of is like, uh, sort of plays into the genocidal ideology that the Saddam regime happened. So it was a very logical culmination of it, but just the manner in which it was done was, I think, uh, very shocking to the world. So yeah, that's sort of the background of the massacre itself. And the one where, uh, obviously not comparing it to, you can never compare to uh, massacres or anything like this, but the one in which, in any case, we saw sort of irrelevant echoes, especially in the lack of responses, uh, which in a way, I have this issue whenever people talk about, uh, not in the context you mentioned, of course, but in general when people talk about inaction, because inaction is a sort of action in itself, that if, that, if you see what I mean. And it, quite a lot of my political or even personal uh, development 
has really been defined by the Ruta chemical attack, which for those who don't know, Ruta is one of the, uh, is a region in Syria, and the chemical attack happened on the 21st of uh, August uh, 2013. And to this day, it's still one of the worst war crimes that were committed in Syria, which again, obviously, it's uh, saying quite a lot. And the thing about the Ruta chemical attack, and this will lead me a bit to, to the question I wanted to ask you, is it also saw, in addition to the geopolitical consequences and obviously the, you know, the, the uh, real-life consequences on victims, we, it be, also became this sort of a starting point. It, it, it happened before as well, but really Ruta, was, Ruta 2013 was, for me, one of the starting points of this massive, massive disinformation uh, online war, basically, online campaign, uh, largely by uh, the Russian government itself or its supporters, sometimes paid, sometimes not even paid. You know, some people do this for free. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, it, it's become a sort of cliche among um, uh, many Middle Eastern activists. I feel that, you know, that the last thing many so-called quote-unquote anti-imperialists in the West uh, basically, like the, the last thing they know about the region, if it's not uh, Israel-Palestine related, is, you know, the 2003 uh, imperial, imperialist invasion of Iraq. And, you know, they may have some limited knowledge of the 2011 uprisings, especially in its early days. But in my, in my view, that sort of it died out relatively quickly, like, you know, towards the end of 2011 or something like this, which is when indifference sort of came back in a sense. And whenever we, and here I'm using we a bit um, loosely, I guess, but it's like whenever we uh, mention the need for something, anything to be done about uh, Assad's now nine years long extermination campaign, and the crime of extermination was actually the uh, a term used by the UN because they couldn't legally, I suppose, use the word genocide. Um, we often get people who say, but what about 2003? What about the weapons of mass destruction? The last time the mainstream media said this and that. And besides the, the you know, racist <laughs> assumptions, obviously, that nothing of significance happened in almost two decades now, uh, that people should inform themselves as if, you know, Iraqis and uh, let alone Syrians were just doing nothing for the past two decades. There's also the irony here is that Saddam did, in fact, use, as you say in your article, he did actually use weapons of mass destruction. And you actually go back to this uh, context and you mentioned the context of the 1991 uprisings uh, in, in uh, Iraq and in Kurdistan. Can you tell us a bit about these uprisings and, um, you know, a bit of the overview? Uh, again, as much as you can, uh, people can do their own researches, of course, uh, but like, what are some similarities as well? Like in addition to some of the overview, what are some of the similarities that you see between these uprisings and the ones that we've been seeing since 2011? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, the 19, so 1991, I think what most people in the West know about 1991 is, you know, um, Saddam invades Kuwait. US-led coalition forces, you know, sort of intervene to expel Iraqi forces from Kuwait. And th this is where I think their knowledge sort of stops on 1991. But the thing is, after after this sort of whole debacle in Kuwait, um, George Bush um, Sr., he made an appeal on the radio uh, telling Iraqis, you know, that a way for them to end the violence and the oppression by the Saddam regime would be for Iraqis themselves to remove Saddam. And um, and so when he said this, what the U.S. actually wanted was um, they wanted uh, Iraq to be ruled in the sort of like by a military regime, but without Saddam. So they weren't concerned about democracy or anything at all, of course, but they just wanted to get rid of Saddam because like, you know, he was frankly annoying to them. And so 
Iraqis and Kurds answered this call very enthusiastically. And I want to point out here that, you know, they might have been encouraged by the West. And by encouraged, I mean, they were just, they believed that, okay, if Saddam, you know, retaliates, which he will, um, that, you know, the West will support us. That's really all they expected from the West. But the thing that motivated them the most was their own grievances with the regime. You know, these are people who had lost mothers, sisters, brothers, fathers to this awful dictatorship. You know, they didn't need someone from the U.S. to tell them, hey, go and like risk your life to get rid of Saddam. They would have done it, but, you know, they wanted that reassurance. So on their way back from Kuwait, um, and there are sort of like mixed accounts of how it, the exact moment that it started. But one account is that an Iraqi soldier, you know, shot a portrait of Saddam and this sort of symbolic event snowballed into the uprising. And so, you know, soldiers defected from the army, turned against the regime. A lot of Iraqi Shia dissidents who'd been exiled to Iran returned. And they'd sort of been inspired by the 1979 revolution in Iran and wanted to turn Iraq into a sort of, you know, similar Islamic Republic, but they weren't the only rebels by any means. And I think this is very important to point out the the armed rebellion was a very diverse movement. It included leftists, communists, Kurds, anti-Saddam, Arab nationalists, you know, all sorts of people, you know, similar to the Syrian uprising. It wasn't um, just one ideology that motivated it. And so the rebels were able to liberate the majority of the provinces. It wasn't limited to a certain area, like perhaps maybe the 1982 Hamas uprising in Syria sort of was, but I'll point out the way that this 1991 uprising in Iraq was different from the Syrian revolution uh, is that the Syrian revolution started out as peaceful protests, whereas the 1991 uprising did begin as an armed rebellion, but for several reasons, you know, one of which is that, you know, Saddam was much more, I guess, openly warmongering than the Assad regime in terms of outright invading his neighbors. So there was never really an opportunity to get normal protests going. And this is kind of why I hate when people use the term, you know, stable to refer to life under any authoritarian regime, particularly Saddam's, because it makes it sound like as if Iraq under Saddam was like Disneyland, you know, simply minding its own business, didn't fight more than one war with its neighbors, you know, not to mention the rate of Saddam's, you know, repression of dissidents. And so the, going back to the uprising, the Shia majority South and the Kurdish North, they were liberated for a short time period. Then this is when uh, we'll see a lot of parallels with the Syrian counter-revolution. So Saddam forces responded with very brutal violence. There's horrifying footage out there of um, women and children trapped in a shrine in Karbala, basically, you know, practically begging for God to save them because uh, Saddam's military aircraft was basically gunning down civilians on the streets. And so, and here we'll get into like one of the U.S.'s biggest betrayals, I think, in the region, which is when a lot of Kurds and Iraqi Shia, uh, so Western troops were still next door, you know, due to the whole thing with Kuwait. And so they asked them for arms and weapons to protect themselves from being gunned down, you know, by Saddam's military aircraft. But they were rejected because the West, you know, sort of feared um, an Iranian-style revolution happening in Iraq, sort of similar to, you know, how they fear, um, like, a Sunni Islamist takeover of Syria. We hear that time and time again. And so this betrayal by George Bush, and it wasn't until, I think, 2011 that the U.S. ambassador to Iraq actually apologized for this inaction. And I forget who it was, but an Iraqi Shia leader said, like, yeah, absolutely, if you had supported us in 1991, that would have been a lot better than what you did in 2003, because and this is key. In 1991, the uprising was led by the people. And so this um, this sort of betrayal was like stayed in the mind of a lot of Iraqi Shia. And the reason why even people who celebrated Saddam's fall this didn't trust the U.S. and rightfully so. I mean, this is a huge betrayal. The death toll is like from, I think, like 20,000 to, you know, over 150,000. 
all within the span of the month. So you can imagine that like, even the Syrian counter-revolution took a long time to reach the sort of death toll. And so um, I think a lot of commentators sort of ask, you know, okay, why would Iraqis or Kurds trust the U.S. in the first place? And I even saw this question asked in, I think, um, yeah, in October when Turkish backed forces were sort of um, attacking Kurds in Syria. And I think there's sort of an arrogance, I guess I could say, that underlines this question. It, it sort of assumes that um, people in the region don't know that the U.S. can be very two-faced. And I'm, I'm reminded of a list that you actually put together of um, Syrian responses to Max Blumenthal's articles that sort of slandered the Syria campaign. And then one of them, you know, basically says, uh, like, yes, Max, the campaign is calling for a no-fly zone, and that's because a no-fly zone is what Syrians have been begging for day and night. And so this type of reaction, you know, that, that asks for protection, I think flies over the head of many Westerners because they don't see human beings when they look at Iraq or when they look at Syria or Kurdistan or wherever. They just see like geopolitical games, I guess. So the fact that the same civilians who have suffered from Western imperialism may still ask the West for help in the face of genocide is something they can't really comprehend or don't want to comprehend because they've never really been in a situation as tough as that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, but yeah, so like, so this was a very monumental event in the history of Iraq and Kurdistan. You know, one grave uncovered after the invasion had as many as ten thousand Shia victims in a single grave. So you can just imagine the the scale of this. And and you know, these facts are really important to consider if someone wants to know, you know, sort of the reasoning behind a lot of the sectarian conflicts that broke out after the fall of Saddam. It wasn't just okay, Saddam fell, and so everybody started going crazy like no it, it had to do a lot with grievances from the past and so i think iraq 1991 is a better comparison to syria since 2011 than um iraq 2003 because iraq 2003 was an invasion it was a regime change led by foreign forces though of course you know ordinary kurds and iraqi shia still celebrated the fall of saddam you know because why wouldn't they but but syria 2011 was a popular uprising and so this is why the comparisons to iraq 2003 really don't work at all um, because 2003, again, was it was an invasion led by foreign forces. So I, I always say to people, you know, if you ever get hit with this argument, you know, what about our, what about Iraq 2003? You know, always um, even ask the people who are saying this, are you aware of um, Iraq 1991? Because then you would know the, the price of not, you know, supporting popular revolutions when they do happen. And, um, and a lot of the tactics Saddam's forces used to crush this 1991 uprising are very similar to the ones that um, the Assad regime would use. So, you know, Saddam loyalists would very openly shout, you know, anti-Shia slogans. Um, they like targeted Shia cities. So it was very deliberate. And, you know, we see the same thing with Assad regime soldiers and their anti-Sunni slogans and the targeting of holy sites. So it's very similar. I always say, you know, just flip the, flip the book pages of the book back to Saddam and you'll, you know, you'll sort of predict everything that's happening in Syria now. And, and I think Syria is actually headed to a post-1991 Iraq-type situation, a popular uprising crushed by a dictator because, you know, the, the rebels were very outgunned and the country will stay broken and sanctioned and there's really no positive outcome from what people, you know, when people say like, okay, just let the Assad regime take over. Well, well, so the Saddam regime did take over the rest of, you know, the Shia majority stuff and it, really, it didn't really end well for anybody. So, um, so I think, you know, even this comparison like doesn't work in any way but it's really hard to like explain this if someone doesn't 
even know the basics of Iraqi history, which is the case, I think, for a lot of the people whose knowledge of Iraq starts from 2003, as if nothing happened, you know, before or after. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I can, I can, <laughs> uh, you know, sense the frustration in your voice is something I, I, I understand uh, fairly well. I'm, I'm not Syrian myself, I'm Lebanese. It's just, uh, and I obviously I would never claim to know uh, what Syrians uh, are going through. It's just something that, yeah, I just became intimately aware of uh, through personal connections and you know through work and everything. One thing, so this is this is true. I didn't actually know this, which I think speaks a bit to my own um, maybe disillusionment or disconnect or whatever it is. But I knew, for example, that when there was the during the fall of Aleppo, uh, during or right after uh, that period, so that was end of 2016. Uh, I remember the memorials and the, you know the stories that were coming out from uh, from Bosnia, from Sarajevo, of people, you know, um, basically saying we know what this feels like, we know what it feels like to be abandoned, and and so on and so forth. And that made sense to me, but somehow uh, until. I think by coincidence, just shortly before actually reading your piece, uh, I didn't I didn't even think of just looking, you know, to the east of Ruta, not even that far away, compared, obviously compared to Sarajevo. You write that um, many Iraqi Kurds, especially those from, from Halabja, obviously, were kind of reliving their traumas when they heard of uh, the Assad regime's chemical mask in eastern Ruta in, in 2013. One uh, person that you quote in the piece even said that this was Halabja all over again. You, you already did speak a bit about this, so, you know, feel free to expand or, uh, you know, you can say that was enough <laughs> as you wish. But like, can you can you speak a bit more about the, the what reliving trauma can look like? And obviously, I mean, not look like, but like, yeah, just express it in the way you feel most comfortable. This is obviously very difficult. I'm not expecting, you know, a... Uh, perfect analysis i don't even think that exists but like yeah just in terms of maybe the emotional side of things to try and move away from this obsession with uh geopolitics as though we're all just pawns and some big uh empires games how uh, did something like uh, the chemical massacre in 2013 how was it perceived by many survivors from the earlier massacres in 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 halabja and the genocide yeah, for sure. So I, I think a lot of people don't um, kind of understand, you know, what is the big deal about chemical weapons or, you know, how particularly horrifying the effect they can have on a civilian population can be. So, um, okay, so Kurds have been hostile to the Iraqi state to some degree or another, pretty much since its inception. But whatever small chance there was at, you know, sort of reconciling Kurdish self-determination within Iraq essentially died at Halabja. Because the level of like distrust and trauma as a result as a result of these kind of attacks, you know, it's it's practically one of a kind. I don't think any of the Syrian victims who suffer from chemical attacks are ever going to see not only the Assad regime but even the idea of Syria in the same way. And so, chemical attacks really have a psychological effect to a much greater extent than most other weapons. Even though you know, of course, all weapons kill, injure, and you know, ideally, we don't want any weapons being used against civilians. But this is why the chemical attacks in Syria reawakened, you know, so many nightmares for Iraqi Kurds, because you never really get those images or that experience or even the stories out of your head. And in the piece, I think I mentioned the example of, for example, I wanted to give like a very, because we always get the question, you know, okay, why would Assad use chemical weapons when he's quote unquote winning? And so 
I really wanted to address this in the piece. And I, so I mentioned the example of a free Syrian army brigade, which had been fighting the regime for years and, you know, never really gave up. But the moment he switched to chemical weapons, you know, that's when they sort of called it quits. And so, you know, that should really give an answer to these people who constantly ask why, you know, why would he use it when he's winning? You know, a totalitarian regime has a very different definition of winning than most people do, or, you know, even most governments. And so the question, I think, you know, when when you, you talk to like survivors about, oh, why would a regime use this when they're winning? It, it's sort of like a joke question to them. They're like, I don't think you understand why these weapons are used in the first place. It's It's not just like, oh, I just want to regain a territory. No, there's a very deliberate message that these kind of weapons sent, you know, otherwise he would just use conventional weapons. And so a lot of Kurds have correctly pointed out that if the world had taken a moral stance on Halabja, regardless of politics, but just a moral stance, then it would have been a lot less easy for the Assad regime to get away with chemical attacks in Syria, which, uh, and, you know, people have only heard about like, like one or two, I would say, or maybe, okay, maybe five tops of the chemical attacks in Syria. There have been over 300. So this is not like, oh, it's just happening once a year. No, this is happening, you know, dozens, uh, over dozens of times each year. And I also want to stress that the normalization of chemical weapons actually just hasn't been limited to Syria. In fact, um, and a lot of people don't know this, which is really unfortunate, but in 2016, the uh, regime in Sudan under um, Bashir used chemical weapons on civilians in Darfur. And unfortunately, this got, you know, pretty much no media attention. But, you know, so when chemical attacks are ignored in one place, it, it just makes the entire world more dangerous in the long run. Because, it, it again, you know, like we've sort of been hearing a lot of Syrian activists say this, but, you know, what's happening in Syria, it, it's not going to stay in Syria. And there have already been so many examples of this. And, you know, this is just another one. You know, you don't want to normalize chemical weapons. Um, I'll get into that a little bit more later. But, but yeah, so basically, the, in terms of the trauma, it's really incomparable. And I think only... Um, another example is I could give is the um, when when the attacks first happened in Syria and Iranian soldiers who you know are backing the Assad regime in Syria heard about this. Uh, a lot of them and there's like uh, articles and interviews about this. A lot of them immediately reconsidered, you know, why their uh, their like support for the regime. And these are people who you know up until that point had been killing you know Sy Syrian civilians. So you can just imagine like the the level of um, not just trauma, but I guess the psychological effects in general that it has, you know, it makes, you know, even the people who are sort of carrying out this genocide, you know, reconsider. So it's really hard to explain. But I think, you know, with these sort of tangible examples, you, people can kind of see that it's not just like using um, any other weapon. Yeah. And uh, the whole um, why would he use this if he's already, quote unquote, winning it, you know, it reminded me of... Uh, <laughs> It reminded me of, uh, you know, Razan Zaytouni, who you, you yourself quoted uh, in your article. Razan, for those who don't know, um, a very well-known, very beloved uh, Syrian activist and uh, lawyer, uh, founded the Violation and uh, or co-founded the Violation and Documentation Center, and was based in Eastern Ruta when the 2013 massacre happened. Razan was interviewed uh, by Democracy Now! at the time in an interview that is kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, it's like a scar in my, you know, in my mind. I just remember it so clearly, even though I watched it, I think, only once because I couldn't handle to watch it again. But you had on, on the once, on the one, and people can find it online, it's, still, it's easily available. I'm actually going to put the, we'll put the link as well in the, in the recommended uh, reading and watching list on the blog post. 
she was talking obviously on the duress she her english uh, pretty good but like not fluent there's an accent there uh and she's obviously talking from the phone on the you know limited very difficult conditions let's put it mildly uh and on the other hand you had um uh cockburn a, a journalist american uh journalist or oh, i think he used to be a journalist i don't know what he is now basically kind of just downplaying what she was saying and essentially using a variation of that argument like why would he do it assad knows that if he uses chemical weapons the obama administration will punish him because that's what obama said he'll do and yet you know lo and behold uh Razan was obviously right she unfortunately uh paid a very uh difficult price for being so principled just a few months after with her kidnapping very likely by Jaish al-Islam, one, one, the rebel group that was uh, dominating uh, militarily and politically in eastern Ghouta. Uh, we, we haven't heard from her since, so it's been almost, uh, well, yeah, almost uh, six years and a half now. And that's it. That was the end of it. Uh, Cogburn continued to write stuff after that. Uh, Razan was kidnapped. Democracy now continued, as far as I know. They seem to have, I don't want to focus on democracy now, it is really, there's nothing personal, like, you know, there's much, much worse than what they did. At least they've spoken to Razan, you know, other people don't even, uh, didn't even bother that on the so-called um, left. So, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to kind of bring them up. And the whole, um, why would he do that, uh, actually leads me quite well, <laughs> unfortunately, to the next question, which is that, it's become very common for uh, us, again, I'm, I'm using us very loosely, to kind of associate the Assad regime with a slogan that is repeated uh, by his supporters that I've heard uh, myself uh, with my own ears by Hezbollah supporters in Lebanon. And usually you're just associated with, um, yeah, with, with regime militias and soldiers, either by Iran, usually uh, Syrians, sometimes Iraqis. Um, which is uh, Assad or we burn the country. And uh, we've seen it written on walls of besieged, outside of besieged areas and so on. But yeah, like this slogan, the kind of already was an equivalent. And you do, you do, you do talk about this, you know, the Saddam regime, uh, his cousin uh, so even gained the, the title, the name of Kamikal Ali. Uh, he raised, in, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm using information in your piece. He raised an estimated 2000 Kurdish villages to the ground. And in one audio tape, uh, and I'll ask you to kind of comment on this generally, he said, and here I'm quoting, I will kill them all with chemical weapons. Who will protest? The international community? Fuck the international community and those who pay attention to it. I will not just attack them with chemicals on one day. Instead, I will continue for 15 days. And if someone is reading this and still thinking that here we're dealing with a situation where this is rational, quote unquote, as if these people are sitting, uh, you know, around a bureau or desk and saying, you know, well, this this is going to be enough. We shouldn't do more than this because then we might have consequences as if it's all some kind of genius calculation. You know, one of those board games like risk or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's it's it, it does betray and like obviously completely agree with you. It does betray a complete disconnect with the realities on the ground because winning, as you said, uh, doesn't look the same. It, for Bashar Assad, uh, what, when we say Assad, we burn the country, it's meant literally. It's not a metaphor for anything. It's literally meant either, <laughs> yeah. I, either I stay in power or we burn the country. He even used the term useful Syria to describe the Syria that 
is under his control, obviously. In some parts of Syria, the poorer parts, the parts that are not in between Aleppo and, and Damascus, for example, some uh, in the north, some in the south, they are simply not as important to him. And he said so almost explicitly himself. When um, another relative of Saddam, and here again we're seeing the same uh, Baathist uh, <laughs> logic, I guess, of having fa families run everything, Another relative of, of Saddam, um, General Maher Abdel Rashid, uh, who I think is the father-in-law of his son. Yeah, that's it. He said, if you gave me a pesticide to throw, to throw at these swarms of insects to make them breathe and become exterminated, I would use it. And this whole dehumanizing language, you know, cockroaches, insects, it's become such a... Uh, common pattern it's just such a it's like you know a chapter one of the rule book of how a dictatorial regime is going to act that it still it kind of baffles me to this day that we don't see the the writings on the wall uh, as soon as this kind of language is used and in the case of Assad we heard this language like as you know by mid 2011 we were already hearing this kind of language so I was wondering and this will tie into uh, what you already spoke about so again uh, feel free to expand as you wish if you can more broadly speak about your own experience, uh, oh, sorry, about how your own experience informed your reading um, or uh, your reactions, I guess, of what's been happening in Syria, um, specifically in Syria since 2011. And maybe you can also talk about, you know, wider context, context you know, Iraq, the recent uprisings. That's, you know, uh, as you feel most comfortable. But especially I would be very interested in hearing what you have to say about uh, how you have been, um, yeah, like just your experience of, of Syria since 2011, if that makes sense. Hi, my name is Efel Eran. I am the editor-in-chief of Mangal Media, an online publication for writers and artists from the so-called periphery. We publish a wide range of material, including investigative journalism, personal essays, and short stories. We, of course, also share memes on social media, Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations, so make sure to also check out our Patreon page and browser-exclusive supporter rewards. Yeah, so I think um, I think to understand sort of the uh, first, I'll just address the uh, the chemical attacks part and the rhetoric, and then I'll get a little bit more to the general uprising. So I think to to understand the use of modern chemical warfare and, and this kind of rhetoric that compares the targeted population of the genocide to, you know, pests or insects, we should really look at the roots of, of chemical warfare in the modern era. So sarin gas in particular was actually invented by a scientist in Nazi Germany. And his original task, um, he was originally task, tasked with creating a pesticide that was supposed to keep pests from eating plants so that Germany could rely on domestic products instead of importing it from elsewhere. So, so sarin started out as a project to get rid of pests. And you can sort of guess where this is going when you consider the rhetoric of tyrants who have used sarin and other chemical weapons. Hitler, for example, used Zyklon B. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I think. And um, that's another type of chemical agent, but it, it's a blood agent, not a nerve agent like sarin. But the point is, you use them on uh, Jewish civilians in gas chambers. And some could kill up to, you know, 10,000 people at once, which, which real, you know, really shows the genocidal intention you would need to have to even use such a thing. And um, and so there are a lot of theories out there as to why Hitler never used them on enemy soldiers and he only used them on, you know, innocent Jewish men, women, and children. But, and I say this in the piece, I think, that 
conventional weapons send this message that, okay, we can kill you wherever we want. But but chemical weapons send a slightly different message, which is that we can kill you however we want. And, and the second part really is, um, it sort of uh, again like goes back to the genocidal intentions, but it's sort of like okay, we we not only control you know whether you live or die, but how you live or die, which is you know a step worse if that's even possible. And so this is why one of them can really change the course of a war or an uprising in a matter of moments, just solely because of the psychological trauma inflicted. And so and so this sort of you know exterminatory language that we see with you know the Assad regime officials or you know said them before them is actually, yeah, exactly, very logical, you know, given their views of, you know, useful Syria. I mean, when you say only certain parts of my country are useful, you're basically saying the rest of it is populated by, you know, the, you know, things we can get rid of. And this is the, this is the implication of it. And they're very honest about it, too. So I, I never understand why there's so much, you know, confusion about what is motivating the regime. I mean, it very, they very clearly tell you, not just um, Assad himself, but, you know, the Shabihat, like, his, all the supporters are very clear about it, too. And I think it was, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you know, genocide is the logical conclusion of racism. I mean, it, it's just it very clearly leads, you know, when, when you go from saying, OK, only certain parts of my country are useful. It's not at all a big step from going there to, you know, gassing people with Syria. It's, it's just a progression. And so, you know, even before UNFOL, for example, the Saddam regime's crimes, you know, include rounding up and executing, you know, I think around 5,000 to 8,000, you know, young Kurdish men on the spot. So, you know, it's, it's really not surprising that something like Halabja would happen. I think what was surprising is that people actually saw it on their TV screens. And I guess, fortunately, back then, there wasn't this, you know, disinformation campaign that Syrians, unfortunately, have to deal with. And even I'm shocked at the level of, I mean, any post about the chemical attacks, even ones that don't mention the perpetrator, but just, you know, extend some sort of sympathy to the victims are just swarmed by denialists and I don't know I don't know how Syrians deal with it but but you know I think we it's, it's it is important for us to keep um combating this propaganda but yeah so in you know in Syria um we can talk about the uprising since 2011 so uh, we mentioned with the Saddam regime their sort of targeting of young Kurdish men so in Syria the targeting of not Kurdish men but predominantly young Sunni Arab men is, is very clear in terms of who is being killed, tortured, and detained. You, anybody can just look at the statistics. It's very, it's very you know, disproportionate. And, and it's not just in Syria, like this kind of a very, uh, going back to that concept I mentioned earlier of gender side, which targets not only a certain um, population, but particularly the young men in that population. You know, Israel uses this kind of rhetoric against Palestine, pal Palestinians, Turkey uses it against Kurds. And, you know, we see it now, even Europe uses it against refugees by saying, you know, it's okay to shoot migrants if they're not women and children, you know, as if young men aren't deserving of human rights. So, so again, this goes back to the idea that, you know, what happens in Syria doesn't stay in Syria. The sort of dehumanizing fascist logic that we see, you know, it, it, it's already gone way beyond the borders of Syria. And so, and so another thing that I wanted to talk about with regards to the uprising is, um, the nature of the Baathist regimes. So, so by I think June of 2011, and I've just pulled up some numbers here. But the tally, the tally of the casualties um, from all the countries that you know sort of experienced the Arab Spring, the tally of the casualties was very high. In you know Tunisia, it was around hundreds, and it says in Syria the number exceeded 1,000, and in Libya it was much higher. So you know when we hear people say, okay you know, Bahrain had revolution. Why did it end up like Syria? Well, you have to consider the different natures of the regime. Yes, both nature, or yes, there's a lot of, you know, regimes that are authoritarian, but there are different extents. And um, 
I'm blanking out on who said this, but um, in terms of the the rate of repression, the Assad regime in Syria is really only comparable by Gaddafi in Libya and um, Saddam in Iraq. There's not really that many other regimes in the region that do have this kind of, you know, this will we burn the country entirely sort of logic. And I think the reason I, a lot of, at least I've noticed leftists in the West sort of, I don't know, fail, they don't believe it, they don't want to accept it, I don't really know what motivates them, but I think the reason they don't understand this is because they find it hard to believe that, you know, dictators in the global south can be, you know, as murderous as Hitler or Stalin. And I think the reason it's hard for so many people to acknowledge this is because they sort of think people from these have no agency, you know, have no capacity to commit great evil or do great good. So, so, so by their logic, you know, only people in the West have the brains and agency to, you know, shift the course of history to start revolutions or end them you know whether for better or worse whereas you know the revolution that started in syria in 2011 is similar to revolutions that have been happening all over the global south and at at the heart of it really is people realizing hey we you know we are just as deserving of freedom and democracy as anybody else and you know that like these regimes they talk big but at the end of the day you know their guns aren't aimed at western imperialism or you know israel or whatever their guns are aimed at us and so i was watching an interview um I'm just remembering now with Nisreen Alamin, who's from Sudan, and she was uh, talking about, for example, when Sudanese protesters, and this isn't Syria particularly, but it relates back. So they targeted, I think, um, an oil or gas station, and a lot of people thought, you know, oh, they're just rioting, they're just causing chaos. But she was explaining that it was actually a very symbolic protest against the regime because, you know, Sudan is a very naturally rich country, and it was the regime which had been stealing the Sudanese people's money. And so for outsiders, you know, they, they don't know all this context and nuance. You know, even I didn't know this until I heard, you know, an actual person from Sudan speak about it. And so if you don't listen to people from the region, you know, with regards to the Syrian uprising from 2011, I think you mentioned the at the beginning, you know, uh, people know a little bit about the beginning, like, oh, there was an uprising, but, you know, they don't care to learn more. And I think it really has a detriment because, you know, they don't just stop at, okay, we don't know anything about Syria. It always goes a step further and they say, you know, it, it's um, CIA-backed coup or, you know, whatever they say. So, you know, if people sort of accept, okay, I don't know much about this place, but I'm willing to learn, then I think, you know, we would be in a much better place now, unfortunately. But, um Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So, you know, here we are, you know, fighting chemical weapons and nihilism, which is, you know, probably the worst place we could be. And this idea, you know, that sort of so-called Western standards of human rights are exclusive to the West. It's it's really a racist idea. And unfortunately, it's shared by both the left and the right. And and I wish it was just limited to them. But fortunately, you know, dictators throughout the global south actually weaponize this belief. I think I remember an Indian politician saying um, that Western standards of human rights, you know, don't apply to India. And so you, you can imagine how a person who says something like this will, you know, treat his own people. And so I think we really need to be, as you mentioned, when um, when the Assad regime says, you know, um, supporters say um, Assad or we burn the country, they really mean it. It's it's not a metaphor. And that's why I always say flip back the page to the Saddam regime, because because then you'll see how a Ba'athist government actually operates. What does it do in the face of an uprising? It, it's it's already all happened. Of course, the context is a little bit different, but, you know, it's all very clear. So there's really nothing surprising, to be honest, about what's happening in Syria, I guess, very sad to say. But um, but yeah, so I, um, I always say, you know, go back to read up on the Saddam regime because it, it will really give you an idea of the level of brutality that such a regime is willing to use. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like that, uh, you know, often used quote, I think by, was it by Audrey Lord? I don't remember, but, uh, you know, when someone tells you uh, who they are, believe them, <laughs> like something like, <laughs> something along those yeah, lines, obviously. Um, Sabrina, you've been, you've been very, very generous with your time. Is there anything that uh, you wish we could have talked about, but, you know, didn't have uh, time to, or uh, maybe you, if you wanted to end on some kind of uh, general note, uh, just go for it? Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess, yeah, my general note would be for people to uh, really prioritize the voices of um, survivors, even when considering policy responses to um, any horrific event, I think it's very important to listen to the people who are actually experiencing it because um, because otherwise you really fall into this trap of, uh, as we mentioned, you know, geopolitical chess, which is, you know, just incredibly dehumanizing and, you know, just downright racist. So don't do that. <laughs> I always, yeah, that, I think that's a very good note. And uh, Sabrina, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me.